Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Can you hear me okay? Okay, cool. If you have your Bibles, uh, we're in Matthew chapter 13. Uh, Matthew chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, the Scripture's up here on the screen. I'd encourage you to look on with somebody with you just so you can track along with us this story that we're going to read um, that Jesus tells. When you're there, just look up at me and I'll know. You got it in front of you? Good. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great cow- crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. Since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came to him and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and in turn I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for you they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, and another sixty, and another thirty. This is the word of the Lord. Here's what we're talking about today. Here's kind of our main point that we're going to drive at uh, through our time together is how we perceive Jesus impacts how we receive Jesus. So how we perceive Jesus impacts how or even if we receive Jesus. 
You ever misidentified somebody somewhere and hollered out to them and they turn around and it's not the person you thought it was? That ever happened to you? It happened to me at the grocery store a couple weeks ago. I saw my wife's niece or something. She's like 17 years old. Her name is Brielle. I got the kids in the back of the car. We're leaving the grocery store. Brielle's walking in the grocery store. I'm like, Brielle, what's up, girl? And it turns around and it's not Brielle. So now I'm the weird middle-aged dude with kids in the back hitting on some random girl at the grocery store. Got out of there before they called the police. When I was a kid, I went to a church camp. I was uh, leading worship for this church camp, and it was right when the first Star Wars came out with Queen Amidala. You remember that? And they had all these big cardboard cutouts of like stormtroopers and Darth Vader's or whatever. And, and one of the cutouts was of Queen Amidala. Natalie Portman played this character. It's like a seven and a half foot tall cutout. And at the end of this church camp, they were giving them away. They didn't need them anymore. So I took Queen Amidala and took her home. 11.30 at night, I get in my house. I put her in my living room. I go to bed. I get up the next morning. And I was 16, so the next morning meant like two. Um, I come out in the living room, and my dad is sitting at the, at the kitchen table, and he goes, Hey, man, would you watch where you put that Queen Amalfitano, or whatever her name is? I said, Sure. What happened? Now, I don't know. Natalie Portman's not, like, super intimidating, but she's, like, some kind of alien queen, essentially. And start with, she was, had her costume and full makeup on and a big staff and some other stuff, right? So I said, What happened, Dad? He said, Well, about 2 o'clock in the morning, I came out to get a glass of water. I flipped on the lights, and there was this person about to kill me in the living room. <laughs> Eight-foot-tall alien about to kill me. And I said, were you scared? This is what my dad says. Awesome. He said, I said, were you scared? And he said, no, son. I breathed a big, deep sigh, and I prayed out loud, oh, God, take care of Sandy. That's my mom. I felt so awful. My dad wasn't even scared. It was just, take care of my family. This is it. This is the day I'm going to die. <laughs> Don't laugh at me. Could have been a stormtrooper, Right? My dad could have died of a heart attack right there. See, sometimes we misperceive people, and when we misperceive them, uh, we, we don't receive them, or in some cases, they don't receive us because we misidentify them. The story that Jesus tells is called a, a parable. That word parable comes from two Greek words. One of them means to throw. It's the verb to throw, and the other one means alongside. So what Jesus does is he takes not a fable where animals talk, not an allegory like Tolkien writes or whatever, like the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where every little thing means something. He tells kind of a story from real life, and he throws it alongside a spiritual truth because he wants us to understand that spiritual truth. And in this particular case, what he's instructing us about is that how we perceive him impacts whether or not we receive him. You've probably already picked it up from the parable. It's four different individuals who respond differently to the word of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And, and, and it's been fascinating for me as we've talked through parables uh, the last couple of weeks. I feel like I'm reading these parables for the first time again. I feel like, you know, when I go in and study them, I'm like, these things are just coming out in, in a new and a fresh way for me, especially because of the context of the parable. And so I know that we can kind of get to this point and we can interpret it like, hey, this, this soil rejects the word and this soil, uh, you know, it grows up and it gets cut off. And in this particular case, the thorns of the world choke it out. And in this particular case, it's received and it's, it's 30, 60 or 100 fold crop. And if you've been in church a little while, you can probably 
hey, I don't, it's the parable of the soils. We, I mean, we, we, we could do this in three, five minutes, and then we could all go to lunch. But there's something far deeper and far richer going on here. We've been talking about it for the last couple weeks, that every parable is intrinsically Christological. That is to say, Jesus is teaching us something about whom? Himself. He wants us to know something about himself, and he wants us not to misconstrue who he is and misperceive who he is, because if we misperceive who, we, who he is, we will fail to receive who he is. Are you tracking with me? Okay, so somebody say yes, you're tracking with me. Are you tracking with me? Okay, finally, somebody talking back to me. I love that. All right, so here's what we need to do before we, before we step into these three different soils. What I want to help us understand is what's going on through the entire trajectory of Scripture and what uh, is happening uh, in terms of the nation of Israel at this time and this messianic expectation that's risen up, okay, and how they might have misperceived Jesus. Okay, so the way that we're going to do this, and, and listen, this is free for nothing this morning. It's a totally different thing. What I'm about to show you has changed my understanding of the Scripture more than any other thing, in a good way, in a positive way. Help me read the Old Testament different. Help me read the life of Jesus different. Help me read the New Testament different. Help me see my role and what God's doing now differently, and I think far more biblically and more accurately. So it's going to help us understand this parable too, but track with me. Don't, don't fall asleep on this part. This, this, is a, this is a big part today, okay? Anybody remember this image from like ninth grade English? Do you remember this? Does anybody, well, shoot your hand up if you remember this. You know, you know what I'm talking about. It's the trajectory of a short story. Every short story, especially in American Lit, kind of goes this way. What happens is the first two things that we see in a short story are the context and the crisis. The, the, draw this thing. I'm telling you, draw it in your notes. It will radically change your life. The context is this. We meet our main characters. We know where they're at. We know what year it is. We know what's going on. And then our protagonist, our main character, encounters some kind of a personal crisis, right? There's a death, they fall in love, like whatever the thing is. If you fall in love, that's a crisis. Okay, so they encounter some kind of a personal crisis, and then the next, some of you are already going, maybe even ninth grade English teachers in the room are like, this is the best church service I've ever been to. This is great, okay? The next thing that happens is what's called the rising action. The rising action are the results of the crisis, like you drop, drop a rock in a pond, what are the ripples that are happening because of that personal crisis that our main character is going through? And then we get to what's called the climax of the story. Something changes, something happens, and, and, and it's a radical turn in the life and kind of trajectory of this main character. And then so what we see on the back end of a short story is two big things. One, the falling action, and finally the resolution. The falling action is the undoing of the rising action. It's, it's all the things that happen because of the crisis, and they start to get rectified, and eventually, if you're French, it's the denouement, it's the resolution, when all things are kind of, are, are fixed. And then the short story ends. This, men and women of God, is the trajectory of the scripture. You tracking with me? It's our context. We meet our first characters, don't we? Their names are first man and first woman, and they live in God's perfect kingdom that he created for them. 
and then they encounter a personal crisis. That personal crisis is this. Um, I think I'd make a better king than you would make a king. And what we see as a result is a ripple effect, rising action, consequences. Again, aside from the parable, just track with me for a minute. Now, the way you read the Old Testament changes, right? Instead of looking through the Old Testament to find examples you should follow, you know what the Old Testament is? It's a record of all the rising action. It's a historical record of all the junk that happens when we think we're better gods than he is. You want to read the life of David, read the life of Noah, read the life of any, anybody. It's like nobody in the Old Testament where you're like, wow. Everybody in the Old Testament is like this, wow. It's different. And what's the climax of the scripture? It's not, it's not complicated. It's not a trick question. It's church. It's Jesus. We're going to represent it with a cross up here, but it's not just the cross itself, but it's the life, death, and resurrection, the incarnation of God himself coming in the flesh, and, and the cross and the resurrection happen, and then we start to experience the falling action, the undoing of all the consequences and the ripple effects that we've been tracking with now for hundreds of years by the time Jesus comes around, right? And then finally, there will be a day when that king comes back, cracks open the sky, and what we'll see is a denouement, a resolution. All things will be made new. No more tears, no more crying, no more suffering, no more pain. We don't even need the sun anymore because God himself will be our light. This is the trajectory of scripture. And how many of you in the room, once again, now remember this from ninth grade English and are going, that is actually really good. <laughs> it's not mine, okay? You could say it's good, it's not mine. It radically changed how I read scripture. So listen, here's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about three individuals that Jesus is trying to help us understand in this scripture that do not receive him because they misperceive him. They do not receive him because they misperceive him. And the first is represented by hard soil a hard heart in those days uh farmers you know it's not like you had just a perfectly plowed field you know you're flying into phoenix and it looks like a grid you know we didn't have that back then or what's called highways and byways uh, tr really highly trafficked areas where the dirt and ground had been compacted significantly so farmers would go out and just scatter their seed and throw seeds everywhere and and, and some of them jesus said fell on the hard soil, the, the highway, the place that it had been trafficked, and because it doesn't sink in at all, immediately birds snatch it up. This is a twofold thing that Jesus says when he explains this parable. He says, first, it's the hardness of your heart because the seed does not go anywhere. Second, the evil one snatches it away. I've got a little bit of experience with birds snatching stuff away. Do you, um, you know that at SeaWorld, they sell you the little fish and you can go feed the dolphins? You done that thing before? Yeah, Craig, you have? Yeah. So I'm feeding the dolphins. They sell you a little thing of fish, little tiny fish, and you go feed the dolphins. And I'm feeding the dolphins. And all of a sudden, I swear on my life, a 29-pound seagull descends on me like Armageddon, hits me in the head, boom, snatches my fish, and they're gone. And he adds insult to injury. He, she, I wasn't close enough. I don't know. So, like, so he adds insult to injury. 
sits like eight, 10 feet away and is just eating my fish. Like looking at me like, ha ha, I got you, hot sriracha. Like you weren't watching. So this is what I did. It was not one of my finer moments. I just want you to know. I was 16. I wasn't thinking. I had an extra shirt with me. I took it out. It was wet from one of the rides. I rolled it up real tight like this, and I popped that little sucker. <laughs> Feathers went everywhere. Boom! Unfortunately, uh, there was some staff from SeaWorld <laughs> that perceived the whole thing and did not misperceive it. Um, it's always the second guy. It's always the retaliation, right, that gets in trouble. So they poli politely invited me to secure alternative entertainment for the rest of the afternoon. That's a polite way of saying they kicked me out of SeaWorld. Uh, I had to tell my mom that story yesterday because she always listens to my sermons after the fact. I'm like, Mom, you know I got kicked out of SeaWorld when I was 16. I don't want you to hear it for the first time when you listen to the sermon. This is what happens to the seed that is the gospel, the good news about Jesus, for those whose hearts have been hardened. Now the question is, what is the misperception that has happened with these individuals that has so hardened their heart. Now this is where the context of the passage is absolutely critical. I would strongly encourage you to go back this afternoon and read the entirety of Matthew chapter 12. There's a couple of groups of people that Jesus is talking through throughout Matthew chapter 12, and then when he begins to tell this story, all of those groups of people are still present. One of them is the Pharisees. It's the religious leaders. These were professional Messiah watchers. They were ready for this chosen one to come along. And in preparing themselves, they had so concentrated on personal holiness that they not only obeyed all of the rules of the Old Testament, but they added another 700 for themselves. Can you believe that? Try it this afternoon. Like, just go back and read all the rules of the Old Testament. Try to obey them all for like a day. You wearing a polycotton blend today? You're already in disobedience. You're already host, right? And they added another 700. They said, uh, you can't spit on the Sabbath day. That's not a rule in the Old Testament, but that was a rule for the Pharisees. You know why? Because if you spit and it accidentally makes clay on the ground, technically that's working and you've not kept the Sabbath holy. Serious. This is why Jesus basically, when he heals the man, you remember that? When he heals him on the Sabbath, that's why he spits. He's telling the Pharisees, hey, 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 your rules ain't the thing. So because they had got so caught up in this personal holiness thing, put our image back up here on the screen, what they thought that climax was going to be was that the Messiah was going to show up as a moral compass. That's what Jesus was going to do. That's their misperception. That when he shows up, he's going to be our moral compass. He's going to be not just a rule follower, but all of the rule followers. And he's going to honor the other rule followers like us. He's going to promote us. He's going to exalt us. He's going to lift us up. And because of their personal self-righteousness, what they thought about themselves, their arrogance, right, their hearts had become so hardened and compacted that in Matthew chapter 12, he looks at him and he says, you're a brood of vipers. You're snakes. 
And not only does Jesus come along and break some of the rules like spitting on the Sabbath or letting his disciples eat on, on particular days, but he hangs out with tax collectors and sinners and drunks so much that people mistook him for one. And the hearts of these religious leaders became so incredibly hardened that the minute the seed of the gospel hit them, birds just snatched it away and it was gone. Now, if you think for a minute that we don't struggle with this now, think again. We, in the church, get so caught up in personal holiness. Listen to me, I'm not saying it's bad. You tracking with me? Like, please don't walk away and go, the pastor told us that personal holiness doesn't matter. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, it's not the main thing. And when you make second things, first things, you lose them both in life. And they have promoted this, I, as my friend Daryl Delhuse used to say, I don't drink, I don't chew, I don't go with girls who do. That's what makes me a Christian, right? That's, that's, what, that's what makes me accepted by God. And when they were looking for the Messiah, what they were looking for was someone who was going to be a moral compass, and Jesus simply wasn't it, so they missed him. Soil number two is the shallow heart. It's the shallow heart. Jesus says, the, the seed of the gospel is scattered not just on these hard places, but in rocky places. And it's immediately received with joy, he says, and it begins to grow, but it doesn't take root. And so when persecution or tribulation come along, it, it, it scorches it and, and it doesn't survive because it has no root. It doesn't endure. The seed of the gospel doesn't endure in a shallow heart. So let's go back and look up here on the screen. Here's our image once again. What is the misperception that happened for them at that climax? The misperception was simply this. Look up here on the screen. So next slide. The misperception is that Jesus was going to show up as a worldview warrior. Here's what I mean by that. The Pharisees and the entire nation of Israel had been oppressed by the Roman Empire now for many, many years. And before that, multiple empires. And so, what, as a result, they began to expect that this Messiah was going to show up and he was going to violently overthrow the government and install our worldview as the predominant worldview of the time. I'm going to say that one more time. So important to hear. What they begin to expect was that Jesus was going to show up, violently overthrow this oppressive government, and install their worldview as the predominant worldview. Here's the best picture I can give you of what they expected the Messiah to be. It's William Wallace. You remember? We're going to take these 200 men. That's my Scottish accent. Thanks for the courtesy laugh on that. I appreciate it. And we're going to overthrow them. We're going to oppress them. And our worldview will be the predominant worldview. And that's not how Jesus showed up. He was not a worldview warrior that came to an ins install the worldview. And so here's what happens. 
because he doesn't do that, immediately they received it with joy. Oh, it's finally our worldview warrior that's come along. And then the seed starts to germinate and grow. And then persecution happens and they're like, wait, I didn't think I was going to be persecuted. I didn't think there was going to be troubles and tribulations. Jesus is going, don't you remember me saying in this world you will have trouble? Nobody's favorite Bible promise. (laughs) My aim, my goal was never to be your worldview warrior and to take the biblical worldview, and there is one, and install it as the predominant worldview. That's not the aim of Jesus. Yes, there is a biblical worldview. Yes, Jesus holds to that worldview. But his primary aim was not to install that worldview as the primary worldview. And so what happens in this particular misconception is, or the misperception is they understand or think that Jesus is going to do that. And when he doesn't and persecution comes, they say, I'm out. I'm out. The third group of people he talks to in Matthew chapter 12 before he tells this parable is those with whom I'll call they have a thorny heart. The, the, the seed of the gospel has been planted. It begins to take root, but the thorns of riches and the world choke out the seed, or what has germinated in their heart, the good news about Jesus. It chokes it out, and it doesn't survive. Again, I would encourage you to go back and read Matthew chapter 12, but here's, here's why I know that this is who, so I'm not just making this up and arbitrarily saying, well, what's going on with this misconception? What's going on with this misperception? In this time in the life of Jesus, his, his uh, popularity with the religious leaders is rapidly declining. <laughs> I mean, it's just in the tank. His popularity with the masses is so much, did you catch it in Matthew chapter 13? He's standing on the edge, just the water just behind him, and crowds of thousands have pressed in on him to hear what he has to say, so much so that he has to get into a boat, push out from the water, and speak to this group of people in an amphitheater. Matthew chapter 12 tells us why they're there. You know why they're there? Do another trick, Jesus. Remember that time when you fed all of us? That was wild. Can you do that again? Remember that time where you you healed that guy and he was blind? The time where you spit? Yeah. Do it again. Do another trick. Let's look up here on the screen. This is their misconception. They think that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was not so he could install a worldview or not so that he could be a moral compass and affirm those who were morally superior, but so that he could be a cosmic genie. You put a coin in the slot and something good comes out. You put a coin in the slot and something good comes out. And I don't know if you know this, those of you who've been walking with Jesus for a little while, sometimes you put a coin in the slot and nothing comes out. Sometimes you put a coin in the slot and bad stuff comes out. So it makes sense that it would be choked away by the world and by riches. Because you're walking with Jesus for a little while, and the seed of the gospel begins to germinate and grow, and you're going, wait a minute. Living like this is not nearly as good as living like that. I gave my life to Jesus. This is why why, um, the prosperity gospel is so dangerous and so harmful. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to have all this faith, and Jesus is going to give me stuff. And then he doesn't. Do you know why? Because he never promised that. 
And then you go, well, I can get all my riches and worldly things over here. And those thorns choke out the gospel. And that misperception causes all three of these soils to not receive Jesus. Ultimately, the parable of the soils teaches us that many will perceive the kingdom, but only good soil receives it. That many will perceive the kingdom, but only good soil receives it. Those who feel morally superior, it just hits a hard heart. Those who think Jesus is going to install a worldview, he doesn't because he never promised to do that. Those who think Jesus is going to be their cosmic genie, they're going to put a coin in a slot, and he's going to give them good things. The world and the riches choke out the word of the gospel. And it's gone. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, to you have been given the secrets of the kingdom. You understand this. In other words, you're the good soil. So here's what I want to do with our time remaining, and we don't have much time is I want to talk about two critical characteristics of good soil. And these are absolutely mission-critical characteristics of good soil. Put that other slide up here on the screen. It's so important. This final soil where the seed is planted, takes root, and produces 30, 60, or 100-fold is those whose hearts are soft to the message, and it's two things that add up together. One is an accurate perception of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Two is a humble reception of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Because if my perception is inaccurate, all of a sudden, I'm the weird, married, middle-aged dude, kids in the back of the car, hitting on a 17-year-old at the grocery store, right? If my perception is inaccurate, all of a sudden, I'm struck with fear, right? We even sang about it. Could it be that my, the, the song you guys just sang, could it be that you, you maybe are something different than I thought you were? And so here's the thing. Jesus gives us a, an accurate perception of who he is and what he came to do. And, and, and listen, did he come to inspire personal holiness? Yes. Did he, did he represent a particular worldview? Yes. He did all those things. But ultimately, primarily, above all things, Jesus came to do one thing and one thing only. And the clue is in the parable itself. Look up here on the screen. Jesus says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the, say that word with me, kingdom. The word of the kingdom. I'm going I'm to say this and then I'm going to defend it biblically. Jesus' primary goal is that he came to be king. That's what he came to do. Jesus came to be king. There are eight parables that follow this one. Every single one begins this way. The kingdom of heaven is like. He doesn't begin them this way. Personal holiness is like. A biblical worldview is like. Having a moral compass in me, a perfect, sinless individual, 
is like. No, no, no. He says eight times, the kingdom of heaven is like. What he wants to do is tell a story that could be kind of a real life story and throw it alongside this mystery that he came to be king. It's all in the context and it's all in the clue in the parable. You know what Jesus' most popular, most favorite word is? So what we would think, even in modern times when we talk about this in church, what we think is that his favorite word is sin or forgiveness or righteousness. You know what his favorite word is? Kingdom. He uses it over 120 times in the four gospels combined. You know how many times he uses word number two that comes second? 43. The accurate perception is this. Put our image back up here on the screen. Is that that cross, the life and ministry and, and death and resurrection of Jesus was his inauguration of a kingdom. Watch. The context is God initially establishing his kingdom. The crisis is when we said, you're not going to be king, I'm going to be king. The rising action is all the stuff that happens when we reject God as king, and then the king came incarnate. And he lived and died and rose again. And church, this is not a complicated question. It's not trick. Where are we living here? Where are we living? Everybody say it together. The falling action. The resolution hasn't happened yet, so here's the deal. If we think Jesus is a moral compass, then we think our primary job as the church is to display personal holiness. It's your job, but it's not primary. If we think that Jesus is, came to install a Christian worldview, then we think that our primary goal, because, he, because he's the worldview warrior, is to overthrow the liberal agenda. Right? You see Christians like that all the time. I'm not saying that that's not good. I'm just saying that it's secondary. Our primary goal as Christians is to install and advance the kingdom of God. Are you tracking with me? This is why Jesus came. That's why the clue is there in the text. That's why he tells eight parables following saying the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like. I want you to know what it's like. The kingdom of God is like. It's like wheat and tares. It's like somebody who uh, found a pearl in a field. It's like this. It's like this. It's like this. That's why he uses the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Over and over and over is that Jesus came to be king. This is the accurate perception of who he is and what he came to do. There's the accurate perception. Cool? Now let's talk about the humble reception of the king. Let's talk about a soft heart. Let's talk about soft soil that first receives the word of the kingdom and it germinates and begins to grow and produce 30, 60, or 100 fold. The soft heart is first of all humble. It's humble. In contrast to the religious leaders, <laughs> one of my favorite uh, theologians, a guy named A.W. Pink, said that the Pharisees' hearts were sermon-trodden. They had been compacted by sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon. And so they came to the conclusion that they kind of know all they need to know about God. Not a whole lot of mystery left there. Not a whole lot of I don't know left there. 
we pretty much got it licked. And so you see Pharisees going to places and you go, oh God, thank you that I'm not like that idiot tax collector over there, right? Praying out loud because they were so arrogant and so prideful. Men and women of God, the humble heart says, could it be, we just sang it, could it be, oh God, that I thought that your primary job on earth and now my primary job to live out is being a moral compass. And when those around me stray from the moral compass, I give their hand a little slap. Whap! Don't hit the bird. Bam! Right? Could it be that you think, could it be that you think or have thought that Jesus' primary job was to install a Christian worldview, and so now you've taken that yoke upon yourself of installing a Christian worldview in the world? Could it be that your perception has been off, and so you've failed to receive the word of the kingdom? That's a humble heart. That's a humble, soft heart. Just asking, could it be? Number two, soft soil is reflective. It's reflective. In contrast to the Pharisees that Jesus is addressing in Matthew chapter 12 that are looking out at everyone else and saying, this is real wrong. This this Roman Empire stuff. This, this, This polytheism stuff. So we're waiting on the worldview warrior to come along and fix all that stuff that's going on out there. See, the humble soil looks inside. It's reflective. What might be a little hinky in here? And a humble, reflective soil can receive the word of the kingdom. Finally, that soft soil is simple. Simple. I love that Jesus says, the worries of the world and riches choke it out. Men and women of God, when you are rich in this world, even more specifically, when you rely upon your riches in this world, it will be very, very, very difficult to hear the word of the kingdom. Some even say, So difficult, uh, difficult like a camel trying to go through the eye of a needle. That difficult. But what Jesus says is the the humble soil doesn't care about those things, doesn't worry about those things. It's a simple heart. A heart that's humble, a heart that's reflective, and a heart that's simple, receives the word of the kingdom. And in those days, if you planted a seed average yield was about sevenfold. Big dog yield was about tenfold. And Jesus says, the humble, reflective, and simple folk yield 30, 60, and even a hundredfold. That seed of the kingdom. Friends, I'm going to tell you one more story about Jesus, and then we're going to wrap. Because again, these parables are intrinsically 
Christological. Jesus is teaching us something about himself. Yes, he's teaching us something about what it means to receive the word of the kingdom, truly receive it, and let it grow and bear fruit in advance of that resolution one day. Yeah, he's teaching us that. But ultimately, he's teaching us that his kingdom and that who he is as king, check it, is humble and reflective and simple. That's why he showed up to a 14-year-old girl with an unwanted pregnancy. This is why he wasn't born in a throne room, but he was born in a horse trough. This is why he wasn't a politician or senator, president, or rich. But he was an obscure carpenter from a town called Nazareth. People you say, how could anything good come from Apache Junction? <laughs> sorry, Nazareth, Nazareth. Sorry, I was, I was Freudian slip there. Some of you have like drove all the way here from Apache Junction. You're like, this stinks. I'm going home. Well, you and Jesus have something in common. This is why he showed up this way. This is why when uh, the Pharisees bring a woman before Jesus who's been caught in adultery, uh, quite literally caught in the act of adultery, maybe even not clothed when they bring her before Jesus. I don't know what happened to the man. I'm always curious about that. They bring this woman before Jesus and they say, Jesus, the, the, the Bible says that she should be killed for this. She should be stoned for this. What do you say? And to that hard heart, to that thorny heart, to that choked out heart, to that shallow heart, you know what Jesus says? Nothing. He doesn't say jack. He bends down and starts to write in the dirt. We just wonder what he wrote. The Bible doesn't tell us. Then he stands up and he looks at these men before him with hard hearts because they were morally superior, with thorny hearts because they were concerned about the world, with shallow hearts because they expected that Jesus would install this worldview and she'd be stoned for it because that's the worldview. And he says, I'll tell you what, if you've never done anything wrong, you never made a mistake, you get to throw the first rock. The Bible says they begin to drop their rocks and walk away. But it adds this one very interesting caveat. From the oldest to the youngest. I'm not old. At least I don't think I am. Compared to some of you, I'm a spring chicken. Compared to others of you, like, you know, I might die this afternoon. I don't know, you know. <laughs> I will tell you this, as I get older and as the, the plow of God's goodness in my life breaks up a hard heart, I'm far more comfortable saying, you know, I don't, I don't know. God's a mystery. I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm far more comfortable saying, could it be that my conceptions about Jesus, my perception about him has been wrong? I'm far more comfortable, far more interested in looking inside rather than outside. 
I'm far more comfortable with less things so that that word of the kingdom could grow in my heart. My invitation to you this morning is simply this. To ask God to till it up for you. To ask him to hit those hard spots in your heart. To remove those rocks and so the seed is not planted in shallow soil. To uh, weed out those thorns that are choking the word of the kingdom. Listen, men and women of God, that's the only way forward. You can't do anything to create that soft heart within you. But as we age, and that plow hits it over and over and over again, the word of the kingdom takes root, sprouts, and yields 30, 60, and 100 fold. And one day, guess what? Farmer's coming back. And, and not as a humble carpenter this time, or as a farmer, but as a king. And he's going to gather up all of his crops. And will live in resolution for eternity. Let's pray. Holy Spirit of God, only you. Only you. can deepen those shallow places. Only you can tear out those thorns. Only you can break that morally superior, hardened ground in our hearts. And so we ask that you would do so so that we could yield 30, 60, and even in a hundredfold. Jesus, adjust our perceptions today so that we could receive you as you came and as you will come once again as king. Before we sing this last song, I'm just going to ask you to spend 45 seconds in quiet. Just ask God to speak to your heart. And then we'll stand and respond in song. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Uh, before you go, there's prayer partners in the back. So if you need somebody to pray with you, pray for you, uh, they'd love to do that. Uh, you don't even have to tell them what's going on. You just go over there and go pray for me. Or you just go over there and stand there, and then they'll pray for you, right? Just walk over there. We'd love to do that. Uh, my prayer for you uh, this week is that God would continue to clear up misperceptions so that you can continue to receive uh, the word of the kingdom in your own heart. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. Have a fantastic Sunday. Uh, we'll see you next week. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. 
North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.